Amen. Let us turn to our scripture reading for this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 1,268. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we will be reading and considering verses 1 to 9. We continue our work through, we did 1 Timothy a little while ago, and now 2 Timothy, and we're already past the halfway point of this uh, smaller, uh, briefer letter. We look at the first nine verses of 2 Timothy 3. Let us hear the very word of God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So far, the reading of the Holy Word of God. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is much discouraging news in our world today. We are surrounded by idolatrous and evil thinking. And the people of God in the very earliest days of the New Testament church were surrounded by idolatrous and evil thinking. And it's not just the world as a whole, it's not just the Roman Empire, it's not just the United States and, and other surrounding nations, it's also that which exists within those who claim to be the people of God, within those who have uh, what might be called a cloak of respectability, claiming to be God's people, claiming uh, godliness is the language of 3 verse 5, having the appearance of godliness. There has always been and there will always be evil both within those claiming Christ and within the world as a whole. The swell of evil, like the water levels of the ocean, it's not always reaching exactly the same point. Sometimes it's swelling and sometimes it's receding, but it is always there. There is always a swell of evil. 
And so, people of God, what is our response? How do we look at these things? How do we consider these things? How do we have hope in these things? And this is what the Apostle is addressing to Timothy in these verses. Our theme then is this, this morning, be ready for false teaching until Christ comes again. And our first point will be a little bit longer, ready, not naive, verses 1 to 5. And then point two, ready, not immature. We'll look at verses six and seven. And then uh, our third point on verses eight to nine, ready, not overwhelmed. Well, ready, not naive. What is the context for uh, for those who were here last week and, and for everyone? Let's just briefly look back at verse uh, 25. We're in this context of how Timothy is to uh, labor against the false teachers in Ephesus, and what is to be his his hope and his approach in this? Chapter 2, verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so Timothy is to labor against these false teachers. We even have one name that appears both in 2 Timothy and in 1 Timothy, and they're written sometime apart, so this has been an ongoing issue. Timothy is to continue to labor in this ongoing conflict between blatant false teaching that denies the gospel and the call to true teaching and true listening. He's to labor with a hope that even the false teachers themselves would repent. But now as we move from chapter 2 to chapter 3, the, the, the movement is this. But even as you hope that they will repent, do not be naive. There will always be opposition to the truth in the church, even in the visible house of God, even among those who claim God's name. There will always be opposition. And so, uh, as um, George Knight, a professor from Greenville Seminary, says in his excellent uh, commentary from the transition to chapter 2 to chapter 3, quote, Paul does not want Timothy to be naive about the difficulty that the spirit of the age presents to his ministry. End of quote. But then we might step back and we say, wait, the spirit of Timothy's own age? Isn't isn't this spoken in the future tense? Yes, it is. Isn't this speaking about the last days? Yes, it is. But what what does that term mean? Well, when we see the words last day in the singular... Uh, like we see it in John chapter 6, for example. That's usually speaking about the final day. That's usually speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, as it is in John chapter 6. It's speaking about the day of resurrection. But when we see the last days in the plural, usually this refers to all of the days between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The basic pattern in the New Testament is this. The last days are all of the days leading up to the last day, between the first time Christ came and the second time Christ will come. And that's uh, very plain in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 2, when we speak about the last days there. And that's also how the Apostle Paul is using the phrase last days here. He is speaking in the future tense 
in, in verses 1 to 4, but as he continues, it becomes very evident, and we'll see this when we get to our second and third point, that he's speaking about the present situation as well. There will be opposition against the truth. We should not be naive. Even as we speak with gentleness to all those around us, hoping that even false teachers themselves would perhaps be led to repentance, we must know there will always be opposition against the truth. And so what should we think when we see the policies of the culture of death remaining intact in our nation? What should we think when we see that yet another public school, yet another public library, yet another Christian school, yet another church begins to openly celebrate sin? Brothers and sisters, we should not be naive. We should not be surprised. We should expect these things. For evils are always celebrated. Celebrated in various ways and sadly even celebrated by those who would call themselves part of the church. Again, looking at verse 5 having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What is the power of godliness? The power of godliness is is back to the language from chapter 1 about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is power for God's people by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to fight against sin. Even as it remains a struggle as long as we're on this earth, there is a power to fight against godliness or to fight against ungodliness. But these false teachers, these false teachers, while trying to maintain some kind of respectability, while trying to maintain an appearance of godliness, they deny this power. And so there's a, there's a series of words de- describing uh, the nature of their attitude. And uh, we have from verses 2 to 4, um, the, the, the big fancy word for it is uh, chiasm. The simple word is we have this sandwich. We have this word sandwich. And so if you think of it with the, the bread on either side and then this one has two slices of cheese and then some kind of meat in the middle, what's on the outside? What starts and ends this series of description? It starts and ends with loving self, not loving God. Look at the start of verse 2 and the end of verse 4. Start of verse 2. These people will be lovers of self. The end of verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so that's how this series begins and ends. And then the the cheese just inside the, the bread of this uh, word sandwich is how that works itself out. And so looking just at verse 2, what happens when you're a lover of self, a, a lover of money, a lover of the wrong things? Well, then there is there is pride and arrogance. And then this also leads to abuse. And so there's, there's words about how that false love works itself out. And then in the middle, there's a series of, of all kinds of things that, that they are not. And, uh, and most of those are carried through in the English translation with, with, with not words, ungrateful, 
unholy, not loving good. And there's, there's a whole series of those words in the middle there. And put together, it's this, it's this love of self rather than loving God and everything in the middle that comes with that attitude. Everything in the middle that comes with denying the, the two basic commandments. We are called to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so if we, if we then, having taken a quick view of the sandwich as a whole, if we just zoom in on verse 2 for a moment, what happens when you are a lover of self? Well, then you will be proud and you will be arrogant. And loving self, you won't care what happens to others and there will be abuse. And so this is uh, the picture. Uh, this is the, the picture of those who are filled with uh, their own pleasure, not caring what the Word of God says, and they are filled with love for self. And now, now zooming in on some of those words in the middle, and especially on the first one, disobedient, this is, starts towards the end of verse 2, disobedient to their parents. And then some of the words after that can relate to the breakdown of the family as well. We, if we think back, this is this is going back some time. Uh, but for those who were here for First Timothy, if we think back to First Timothy chapter four, part of the mark of these false teachers is that they spoke against marriage. We saw that in the first verses of First Timothy chapter four. What do we see today, people of God? We see the breakdown of the family. We see the the breakdown of the family unit. We see voices saying that, that this is a good thing, that we must break down the family, that we must celebrate any kind of family, any kind of family unit in all these things. So that swell of evil is always there. Sometimes, sometimes it's at high tide. Sometimes it's at low tide. We should not be surprised when we see this. One of the basic and the very first institutions that God has given to us, the blessings of the family unit, the world will hate the family unit. And even those within the visible church calling themselves God's people will speak against the family unit as God has established it. From the beginning, one man and one woman coming together, the two shall be one flesh called to uh, multiply. And so if we just take one of many statistics that we could pick looking at the swell of evil in our own time. We could go back to a year like 1960 when a fair number of our members were already living. And uh, we could think about how 95% of babies in this nation were born to married parents in the year 1960. And then today the number is 60%. And that includes all those parents who are in their second and third marriage. There's a breakdown of the family in that way and in, and in so many ways, brothers and sisters. But we should not be surprised even when those who would pretend they are wearing the armor of God would be part of this love of self, not loving God, breaking down God's institutions. And so we're to be ready, we're to be ready and not immature. This takes us to our second point. 
If anyone thought that the last days was only a reference to future time and they were living in Timothy's day and they heard the first four or five verses and and they think, well, everything's going okay, that's not for us yet. From verse uh, 5 onward, the Apostle Paul, or from verse 6 onward, the Apostle Paul brings it to their immediate situation. And in this case, the false teachers, men like Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were named back in chapter 2, verse 17, this teaching is especially captivating for immature women. And that's what this specific situation looked like. And so uh, it's especially the weak women in in this context to that phrase in verse 6. It it has the idea of spiritually immature women. It's especially spiritually immature women who are susceptible to this false teaching at this time. Why exactly is that? Uh, The only detail we get is at the end of verse 6 that these women were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Uh, Possibly, um, if we think about how these false teachers were probably some of those early Gnostics saying that the body is always bad, the spirit is always good. Possibly it was something like this. Because the body is always inherently bad, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And so burdened with past sins, these false teachers come in and they say, well, it doesn't matter what you did with your body. You don't have to be ashamed of any sin you've ever committed. And you don't really have to worry about committing future sins either. And that would be a message that would be very easy on the ears and to which these weak women would be especially susceptible. It's not easy to be ashamed of sin. Of course, in the Old Testament times, we see that same kind of language. And who are the false prophets in Jeremiah's day? They're those who do not blush over sin. We're called to be ashamed of our sins, all of our sins. Even as we're called to know that there is forgiveness for all of our sins in Jesus Christ. The answer is not, have no shame, do whatever you want. The answer is, we are all unclean. We all must come to the only one who is without sin. And there we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Now, again, exactly what the dynamics were in Timothy's day, that's, um, we only have the exact details at the end of verse 6. And so exactly how this is working out, exactly why it was those weak women, we, we can only make an educated guess. But we do know that, that sometimes certain false teachings appeal to certain people groups. Maybe the false teaching that you just need to be institutionally loyal might appeal to older persons. Right? So what does that look like? Let's give a specific example. Maybe you are in the same church for 60 years. And then false teaching creeps into that church. But instead of standing strong, someone would be naive. Someone would be surprised. They'd say, well, how can this happen in a church that I've spent my whole life in? And the message of, well, you really should just be loyal to whatever church you grew up in could be especially tempting to an older person. And they could remain in a church that has drifted to false teaching. 
some false teaching might be especially difficult for older persons. Some false teaching might be especially difficult for younger persons. Some false teaching might be especially difficult for women, as it was here, and some for men. I uh, spent a brief time in, in Cuba, and um, when I was in college, it was brief, but it was it was memorable. It was eye-opening. I remember particularly one conversation with uh, the missionary there, and he talked about how there's very few men in the church in Cuba, because Cuba is this um, chauvinistic, male-dominated culture which stands against the message of servant leadership for men in God's word. And so, as the gospel was proclaimed, very few men were hearing the gospel in Cuba. And then, again, this was just one very tiny slice, but when I, when I went to worship on Sunday, and it's a tiny slice because the Cuban government uh, restricts how many people can gather together for a religious service, so there's only about 20 people, but those 20 people, it was 19 women and children and one man. But whatever the false teaching is, and brothers and sisters, in this day, it seems to be largely indiscriminate. The teaching of you get to determine what's right and wrong. You get to determine what you want to do. You get to determine what church involvement means, what truth means, what your identity is. It seems to be quite indiscriminate. It doesn't seem to be especially for women or for men or for young or for old. But whatever the false teaching is, we are called to stand mature and firm upon the unchanging truth of the Word of God. Not surprised when the false teaching would come. Not surprised wherever it comes from. Standing firm by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is how we fight against sin. Now, the Apostle moves to uh, words of hope. Ready, not overwhelmed. Verses 8 and 9. Let us be ready for whatever false teachings come our way, for whatever the, the next cycle of bad news that we uh, see on the TV or, or scroll through on Twitter or whatever, let us, or, or hear uh, within the context of the church, let us, let us be ready for any of it, all of it, and, and let us, as it all comes from all these different directions, not be overwhelmed. There has always been opposition. And now uh, the apostle gives an example which takes us not only to all of the last days between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, but it even takes us back before the first coming of Jesus Christ. He gives us an example which comes from the days of Moses. And now as we see the names of the magicians in Pharaoh's court, you might say, but I don't remember reading the names, Janus and Jombres in the book of Exodus. And you would be correct. These names are not uh, recorded in Exodus. This is one of a few places, together with really two places in that little book of Jude, uh, when uh, some of the ancient Jewish traditions are, are quoted as being correct, but noticeably uh, it's, it's not introduced as scripture. And so 
For example, in Jude, when Jude even quotes from the book of Enoch, it is not introduced as, as scripture says. It's, it's just introduced as, as something that Enoch said previously. Why, why, did, why did the Apostle Paul give this example? Well, probably because this is what the false teachers were obsessed with. The false teachers were obsessed with all of the old myths and genealogies of the old Jewish traditions. And so those are mentioned in 1 Timothy 1 verse 4, 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, and they'll be mentioned again in 2 Timothy 4 verse 4. And so, in other words, the the complete thought is something like this. Timothy, you know those false teachers who are obsessed with those myths and genealogies and all the old Jewish traditions? Well, there's two men named in those old Jewish traditions. That's where we have the name for the magicians in Pharaoh's court recorded. And you know who those false teachers are? They're just like the false magicians. They stand against the truth, but they will not prevail. And so, are even our younger members familiar with the account of Exodus and with Moses and Aaron, the two brothers, as faithful servants of God, coming to stand against Jonas and Jombres, who according to some accounts were brothers, the unfaithful servants of Pharaoh. And what happens with the snakes, for example? The snake from Aaron's staff swallows up the snakes of the servants of Pharaoh. And then finally, you get to the plague of the boils and the Pharaoh's magicians themselves, Jonas and Jombres, are overcome. Exodus chapter 9, verse 11, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And so the apostle takes this example from part of the very materials that the false teachers were obsessed with and says, Timothy, don't be overwhelmed. And to all of us today, and all of the false teachings and and all of the things that the world and those with an appearance of godliness claim What do we say? We say, do not be overwhelmed. The head of that ancient snake, the serpent, has already been crushed by Jesus Christ. He has already conquered sin on the cross. And his final victory is absolutely assured. In God's timing, all of God's enemies will be defeated even as we patiently rebuke them now, as perhaps God will lead them to repentance before the last day. So brothers and sisters, let's stand strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 9, is it's a complete unit of thought. It's a... Um, it's one of those texts where, like, 
whenever a preacher works through 2 Timothy, there's like there's not really any question. You, you basically always take these nine verses. But sometimes when we're working through a book, we get nine verses like this. And let's, let's not get too uh, focused on the tree to lose the forest. Uh, it, it, is, it is so repeatedly plain, even as Jesus Christ is not mentioned in these nine verses, that the victory is in Jesus Christ. Remember chapter 1, verse 10, about our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Or chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Or the words in chapter 3, verse 15, after this text about salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, or even most especially the words in chapter 4, verse 8, which are coming up for us. Chapter 4, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And here it's in the singular, because here the apostles speaking about the last day, the final day, the day of resurrection, the day of judgment, when all people will stand before God. But what will the righteous judge do for those who have repented and trusted in Him? The Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Brothers and sisters, do not be overwhelmed by all of the bad news, by all of the false teaching that comes from so many different directions. And the Apostle Paul is speaking again, especially about the context of the church here. He's imprisoned by the Emperor Nero awaiting his beheading, but he's focusing here upon the false teaching in Ephesus. But whatever is in our empire or whatever is proclaimed by those who call themselves the church, let us not be overwhelmed. Let us love His appearing. Let us eagerly wait for the victory. Knowing the victory of the first coming and the complete declared victory of that second coming. Amen. Let us pray.